0: And it's time for another female first, which means we are thrilled and delighted to once again be joined by our good friend, Eves. Hi, Eves. Hi. Hey. It's always so wonderful
2: to have you on, and we always have such fun
0: conversations (laughs) right before we start recording. Yeah, we do.
2: And I I feel like it's my fault often for taking us on those tangents, because it's nice to catch up, because this is often the only time I get to see (laughs) y'all. Right. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, no, we love a good tangent, and uh, we got yeah. to talk
0: about,
1: like, lime wire and body odor. <laughs> we guys, went down to about like, six different holes here trying to uh, <laughs> catch up because we jumped from subject to subject. We're so good at that. <laughs> we are. We are. I am so,
0: so excited about the topic you brought today. And before we get into it, I wanted to ask, um, were either of you growing up, did you ever have periods where you were really interested
1: in space? No. Uh, yes. I didn't. <laughs> so I'll let
2: Samantha take the floor here.
1: <laughs> Direct no. That's usually me. I'm like no, but thanks. <laughs> uh, yes, I really, really. One of the one trips. I don't know. Was this everybody in our generation? Uh, we would go to the planetarium from yeah. like I think kindergarten till about third mm-hmm. grade. Every field trip. Yeah. We had mm-hmm. maybe the fourth grade. We would go to a planetarium, and uh, unfortunately, a majority of our planetariums have been shut down or closed. I think there's one um, TELUS Museum, which is up yeah. above Cartersville here in, in mm-hmm. Georgia, which is pretty far away from us. Mm-hmm. But I loved going to that. I loved going to uh, the IMAX. This was before IMAX mm-hmm. became part of the theater. Man, I'm really dating myself. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm right there
2: with you, Samantha. Don't
1: worry <laughs> okay, about it. don't love Okay, Mm -hmm. and then going into the planetarium to watch uh, the sky, which we were inside the dome, and they would do this like picture, and I was fascinated. I loved it. Now, everything for me had everything to do with the aesthetics, so it wasn't necessarily (laughs) the science part, so I just wanted to see the stars. I wanted to be under the stars. Uh, The other night, as in fact, we had the blood moon come through and the lunar eclipse. Did y'all watch that?
2: I did not. I didn't. I was inside.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> I, so, felt it, so like I felt is,
2: the energy before, during, and after. Right. So <laughs> just didn't, I didn't watch it.
1: So I went to see the first part of the eclipse and it was beautiful. And then uh, my partner, who actually has a really nice camera, started taking pictures of the blood moon. It was gorgeous. So we got to see all of that. But yes, watching it and seeing it and being fascinated by what's out there is definitely something I care about. The science, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs>
2: I can relate to that samantha i because i did love planetariums too but it was just like it was more so the the feeling of being inside a dark space that it wasn't an experience that i had every day as a child so i like that element of it and then the displays that the places we went to or the planetariums would put on with the 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 nice narration with the soothing yes. voice happening yes. and I don't think I had as much wonder and awe about what it all really meant or the scale of things or the grandness or I didn't have any deep philosophical ideas or even think that it would be something that I would be interested in professionally or career-wise. And I think that's like science was never that element for me. I was, yeah, I was always firm, firmly in the direction of the arts. It's not I'm not saying that they're polar opposites, but... <laughs> Science felt a little bit farther away from my personal field of interest, but I I respect it a lot more now and I have a lot more connection to it and draw toward that direction. Yeah,
0: uh, I... Loved it and was terrified by it. I also love planetariums. Uh, we went to NASA, the NASA Center in uh, Huntsville, Alabama when I was in sixth grade. Of course, because you're in sixth grade, that trip was full of drama, but it was cool. And I I loved, like, I have over 3,000 of those glow-in-the-dark stars on my mm-hmm. childhood roof, oh my um, which my mom later found out and then lamented. And she was like, we'll never be able to sell the house. And I'm like, this is a benefit. <laughs> They're going to be lucky to have this. <laughs> <laughs> I did constellations and everything. Uh, but I, I do, I love the aesthetic as well. And that was one of the reasons I did that. I had a telescope. I also used to just draw <laughs> the planets. I don't know why, but I, I thought they were really pretty. And now... Uh as Samantha knows, I have a galaxy projector and I'll put it on at night and it'll help me like relax. And sometimes I'll write oh. to it or sometimes I'll just listen to music and look at it. I love it. However, I was terrified of space, even though I loved science fiction um, and even obviously space operas as they're called, space fantasy, <laughs> because of a prank that was played on me when I was nine years old that was very successful, but I'm still angry about it. Um, so I was all, it was, it was a weird dynamic where I loved it, but was terrified. And I was like, never would I ever go to space. And then once I got older, and I, I really loved like the science of it. I loved like the, you know, figuring out how old stars were and stuff. Then I was like, Oh, I'd like to go to space, Uh, which was a very big change for me. I probably never will. But
2: Oh, I thought this was going to be one of those moments, those (laughs) any moments where you uncover something about your weird and very interesting life that you're like, (laughs) and I did when I I was 12.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. I have not done that. I've hiked very high mountains and that's probably the closest I will get. And that's fine. It sounds like a very dangerous space. Uh, Space,
1: yeah. Um, Anyway... (laughs) That was a nice ending. Thank you. I love it. And I think the one thing about, but well, both the space and ocean is that there's so much discovery to be had still, and Mm -hmm. the unknown is that scary part. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and recently, I don't know if this is one of the reasons you chose this topic to use, but. We uh, had that first photo of the black hole and also the sound that it makes. I was listening to it, and it was beautiful and haunting. I was like, oh, (laughs) I'm a little nervous about (laughs) (laughs) that. You can feel the vast expanse of everything. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, with all of that being said, uh, who did you bring for us to discuss today, Eves?
2: Well, yeah, I do just want to say as part of the segue, like I think that it is relevant to the way that Mariah Mitchell, who is our topic today, thought um, just about how little we know and how much of exploration and discovery and scientific investigation comes from curiosity and ignorance. And yeah, so I think that there is a similar thinking there in, in what you just said to what the way that Mariah Mitchell operated in thought as well. So in terms of her first, she's considered the first recognized professional female astronomer in the United States. Um, And she was also the first female member of the American Academy of Arts and Scientists. And she was the first person in America to discover, or in the world actually, to discover the telescopic comet that she observed. Um, And we'll get to that story of hers a little bit later because it's one of the things that she was super well known for. But not the only thing, because there are a lot of markers of success in her story. There are a lot of firsts in her story, even some other ones that I didn't mention. So, yeah, there's a lot about her story that is very impactful in the scientific realm, in the realm of observation of the skies and astronomy. But she also touched on education um, and I think is an inspiration and role model in many ways as a person who delved really deep into the work that she was doing and really cared about passing on that work to other girls and young women and students and potential students of astronomy. Yeah, she's got a lot
0: of fascinating, just like random kind of, they were presented as throwaway facts in her story. And I was <laughs> like, wait, I want to know more about that. Yeah. <laughs> what? It's really, it's really, really interesting. And I'm, again, angry
2: that I hadn't heard about it before and glad that you're going to tell us all about it. I am too. I am too, because I think usually in these, I I think sometimes she might be on the scale of a little bit more well-known, but I also think that's because of her own background. She's a white woman from the United States of the 1800s. So it's a little bit, I think more people have had access to her story but it's still not one that is super well-known, even though she actually did a lot for the fields that she was in. And I do, in these episodes, try to bring more stories from marginalized people. Um, But she had such an impact on the field of astronomy and had such a fascinating story. And of course, it's always worthwhile to tell stories that aren't as well known, even if you are a person who's in science, like there's a good chance that you may not know her story. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about her today. Yeah. Uh, Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. So she was born on August 1st, 1818 in Nantucket, Massachusetts. Her parents were William and Lydia Mitchell, Her father was an amateur astronomer, a teacher, and he later worked for a bank and her mother worked for a library. She had a big family. She was the third of 10 children and her ancestors and her parents as well were Quakers. And Quakers, if you're not that familiar with who they are, they're members of the Religious Society of Friends which is obviously as a religious organization like has a lot more depth to it than I'm going to explain right now. But it has ties to Christianity, though not all Quakers are Christians. um, Their values emphasize peace, equality and simplicity. And the history of their treatment and their advocacy of other people's human rights causes is very complex. But you will often see Quakers names associated with human rights causes in U.S. history. Like they were known for being involved in movements like abolition and women's suffrage and Native American rights. So there are links there. And her parents were obviously tied to that religion, but also really cared about education for her and her siblings and really emphasized that throughout their story. You'll see that her father is for her father and her mother, but her father, especially as an amateur astronomer, he was, um, had a huge influence on her. They really cared about books, a thing that I love in their story. And her love for books really shines through and how she thinks everybody should study through books. So I'm all the way here for that. But um yeah, so her parents had a huge influence on her. Um, Because Nantucket is an island and the work people did there required them to be at sea, the men that lived there were often away from home and women would hold down the fort at home while men were away for long periods. And this plus the presence of those Quaker values that we talked about created conditions of relative independence for women. Um, And her Her parents, because her parents valued education for all their children so much, the girls learned to sew, they learned to cook, but they also learned to read. The the children went to school, but they also studied at home with the help of their parents. And early on, Mariah showed an aptitude for math. She learned to use the sextant and the telescope And at 12 years old, Mariah and her father observed a solar eclipse through a telescope in her home. And when she was 16, she left the school she was attending, but she soon began working there as an assistant teacher. So her pathway toward the illustrious life in astronomy that she had started pretty early. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm like, oh my gosh, she was 16 and she was already starting this? Yeah. Pretty cool. (laughs)
0: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank.
2: Member FDIC. Terms apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With
0: access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
1: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit
0: snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought
1: to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair
0: bands
2: She soon opened a school of her own where she admitted students of color, which was controversial at the time. Then she became a librarian. She followed in her mother's footsteps. She became a librarian at the Nantucket Athenaeum, which was established in 1834 when the Nantucket Mechanics Social Library and the Columbian Library Society joined. It operated as a private subscription library Here's one of those first that we didn't mention earlier, and that Mariah Mitchell was the first librarian there, and she was just 18 at that point. And during this time, she and her father kept getting equipment and conducting observations, working for the U.S. Coast Survey and other organizations. She worked at the Asenium as a librarian for 20 years. And the Athenaeum hosted things like anti-slavery conventions and the building itself was burned in a huge fire in Nantucket in 1846 and had to be rebuilt. So it was in a very interesting place. You'll see um, in her diary entries that... She talks about the people who came in and out of the location. So, like I said, there were anti-slavery conventions. So it was a meeting space for intellectual conversation and depth and all those things. But people would also come in just to see Mariah herself. And she talks about kind of being like bored with those people in her diary (laughs) entries. Like, yeah, I'm used to it. They come through. They're looking for me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But um, it seems clearly she enjoyed... Her time there, she was there for 20 years and um, there's a lot of history in her being able to study herself while she was still working as a librarian there. But also the impact that she had on other people who came through, like people who would go off to faraway places and she would see them change and they would write back to her and they would come back and visit her. Um, So some pretty warm and interesting interactions it seems like she had there. In addition to all of the people that she came into contact with while she was there, people like Frederick Douglass, um, who came for those meeting spaces over issues like women's rights and abolition. Anyway, um, on the night of October 1st, 1847, she spotted a comet when looking through her telescope. Um, So, rewind back to back in 1831, the king of Denmark offered a gold medal to the people who were the first to discover their respective telescopic comets. Um, I'm using finger quotes right now because telescopic comets are comets that you couldn't see without a telescope. So, that king was dead, but thanks to his son, the offer still stood. And that comet that Mariah observed, others observed the comet after her Namely, Francesco De Vico on October 3rd. And there were other people as well, but he reported that to others. And De Vico, as the first to spot it in Europe, was thought to have earned that medal. But he didn't because he saw it after Mariah and because she saw it a couple of days before him. And that was eventually recognized. Um, Mariah's father sent mail to Harvard University talking about the discovery and how it was delayed. There was like delays for weather because the they had to go through the mail. So there were delays because of that. So it was an unfortunate happenstance. And... Edward Everett, who was the president of Harvard University at the time, advocated for Mariah being the deserving prize winner. And she was recognized as the first to have observed it, though it took a minute for her to actually get her award in the mail. She was awarded for being the first person to spot that comet through the telescope. And the comet was named 1847-6 or now C-1847-T1 in the modern designation. And it was also known as Miss Mitchell's Comet. I love that. Would y'all want a comet named after y'all? I would
0: until it like destroyed something. I, I don't right. know. <laughs> if it was a nice comet that was pretty in a way, then yeah. <laughs> it
1: was a nice, just says hello and moves on. Yeah. You know, you know sure. Why one not. Of those nice <laughs> I am very fascinated by this like race to find the first comet or to be the one to spot the comet. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that went down because. You know, today if you didn't have picture proof that was dated and stamped, do people believe this? Maybe I'm just too caught up in social media world where we're too caught up in like this could be easily faked. When was this done? Type of thing. Yeah. But that's fascinating to see oh, like true. how this was all verified, who said what, what can you cause like if you don't see it, how can you <laughs> unless someone was there with <laughs> you, how do you approve? I saw this comment first. Yeah. I just find it very fascinating. And then also I love that people actually went to bat for her. Mm-hmm. In order to make sure that she got that credit, but it's it like it's very interesting. I'm like, how do you do this? This feels like a whole like drama that you have to do somehow to show that you were the one to see it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, Samantha, because it's really hard to be believing of these kinds of things in the era of deep fakes, right? Um, and I wasn't even thinking about it in that way. That's definitely one way to think of it. I was thinking about it in the way of like their. Is like in other ways, there's such a rigorous process of documenting right. something, like for instance, for the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, and also, we have, I guess, maybe, I'm not sure, I might be speaking in front of myself right now, but that we have such a specific understanding of the scale of things because we are so connected globally at this point in time. Right. So I find myself thinking like of course like of course somebody somewhere did that before. We just don't know about it because there are nearly 8 billion people on the planet and like the world is so big and so many things have been undiscovered and so many people don't have access to resources to report things and Right. you know like it's and I think that a lot with a lot of these first like they're has to be someone <laughs> right. else. Um, and I think that's the case with this calling Mariah the first recognized professional female astronomer in the United States. I mean, there are a lot of qualifiers to that. What are we considering a professional? You know, are we doing right. this specifically because she's a white woman? Um, so a lot of things to think about in that regard. So thank you for raising that point.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I'm very suspicious today.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Pixar didn't happen, I see. And then even then,
0: they could be (laughs) faked.
2: Yeah. Yeah, cheers. So on uh, around this time, uh, May 29th, 1848. So, um or around the anniversary of that, she became the first woman elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. You can look at her certificate of admission online into that academy. On it, you can see the word sir crossed out, which is funny to me, like they just had this stack of them with I don't know how that error happened. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> they already had a stack printed out. That somehow had her name on it? Not sure. But the word fellow is also crossed out and written over it is the phrase, an honorary member. So huh. pretty cool to look at that history. Mm-hmm. Moving along her timeline in 1849, she moved with her father and began working as a computer, calculating tables for the U.S. Nautical Almanac. She was assigned calculating tables for the orbit of Venus. And the next year, she became the first woman elected to the American Association for the advancement of science. And she talks about in her diary entries, and it's known that she wanted to travel through Europe for a while in her life. Though she didn't make a ton of money, she had been saving and she did end up making this happen. In 1856, she left her job at the Athenaeum. And in 1857, she traveled throughout southern U.S. and through Europe And many years later, I think it was in the 1870s, she did end up returning to Europe again for some more travels during the summer. Anyway, in that first trip, she met a bunch of people while she was traveling through Europe, like astronomer John Herschel, Alexander von Humboldt, and mathematician and writer Mary Somerville. She visited observatories there, including the Vatican Observatory. And in terms of her personal life, her mother did become sick in 1855, And over the years, Mariah took care of her. Her mother did end up dying in 1861. And after that, Mariah moved to Lynn, Massachusetts with her dad. So this kind of next part kind of begins a different part of her life, whereas this one, up until this point, was pretty heavily focused on her own scientific investigation and sweeping the skies, as she would say, and um, her own observations. In 1865, she was appointed professor of astronomy at Vassar College in New York, which was initially a women's only school. So she starts to move in the direction of being super focused on her work at Vassar, what she was contributing to her students there, really uplifting the program of astronomy there and observatory there, and guiding students into being part of the astronomy world and learning more about it and being a teacher, and she was also named director of the observatory at the college, which was a post that she held for more than 20 years. So she did another 20-year stance somewhere else. She uh, clearly was a person who liked to stay where she liked to be at. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. so her salary at the college was $800 a year, and that was less than other male professors were getting. So we know this narrative, this narrative existed in the, 18, the mid-1800s as well. And it was one that Mariah herself called out. She, you can read the story of her going through this compensation battle with the trustees at her school. She got room and board for herself and her father, but Mel Professor's salary was $2,000, although rent, fuel, and lights were not covered in their compensation packages. She and another woman professor, petition for a higher salary and for their compensation to be on par with the men's. She did end up getting a pay increase. It's a whole saga, but she did end up getting a pay increase. Though the committee that was handling the issue did for a time charge her $16 a week for a furnished room with light and heat which was not not good enough. That was too much. And a number that number also effectively lowered her salary for that which she deemed too high. So that was going to be a problem. That wasn't going to work for her. So she wasn't going to settle for just getting a bump in her pay. She had to, you know, make sure that she was actually being fairly compensated. And of course, as those battles go, she didn't necessarily get everything she wanted. That number was eventually lowered to $10 a week, I think it was. But she became increasingly invested in teaching over her own scientific inquiry she continued, though, to work for the Nautical Almanac for a while, but she eventually let go of that work to focus solely on her work at the college. And there's a lot of warm, they're pretty warm to read, all of the praise that she got from her students and Her colleagues, her teaching style was unconventional, and many of her students grew to love her after being in her classes. She would bring students out to the observatory at night. She wanted students to actually learn things rather than just memorize things. She also wanted them to study on their own and Read rather than just be lectured to. And she recognized the value in her students learning on their own and arriving at their own truths through their own investigations. And she would publish her and her students' findings in journals. She traveled with her students to observe eclipses like Samantha does. And clearly <laughs> Annie and I do not. I did that one time
1: <laughs> a couple years that. ago. <laughs> There's pictures. People have tons of pictures. You're fine. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
2: And she helped raise funds for the observatory as well. And she would publicly advocate in general for better women's education and the need for women in science. And she joined other groups. She was part of other organizations. In 1869, she became a member of the American Philosophical Society She was also one of the early members of the American Association for the Advancement of Women, at one point even its president, and at another point headed its committee on science. So she was running in a lot of circles with activists and met them through things like speeches she saw and... Some of these people were her friends, some were people were, some of these people were acquaintances that she met in her travels in Europe. So she had a pretty extended reach. But other people like Frederick Douglass that she knew, others were Ralph Waldo Emerson, Lucy Stone, and William Lloyd Garrison. So her father, who had a huge impact on her throughout her life, he died in 1869. And later in 1873, like I mentioned earlier, she spent more time in Europe. So uh, one of the great things about her history is that you can read some of her own writing and quite a bit of it. And quite candid as well in the journal entries that she provided. And one she talks about, I mean, I could go on forever about these. I think I love she was... Very eloquent in the way that she put things as well. Her turns of phrases are pretty, pretty inspiring, I would say. Because I know a lot of times we can read these old journal entries. Like if you've ever gone back to some of the other people we talked about in the past, and past female first, a lot of them had journal entries as well. But sometimes they they were written in the person's style of voice. So often it was interesting to read their stories, but they didn't necessarily put it in the best way. Like their diction wasn't the most interesting. Um, but I do find that reading Mariah Mitchell's work and her words through her journal entries, uh, they uh, dredged up a lot of different ways of thinking, even if those philosophies were ones that I was already familiar with. So it could be worthwhile reading for that from that perspective. But in one, she talks about how women have been confined to women's work And to doing that and little else to take up all their time. But she says that, quote, the universe of truth beyond remains unentered. So talking about the way that women were looked at and their capacity for learning and putting them into educational programs, what those educational programs did. There was one she talked about when she went to Europe. I can't remember exactly what place it was, but she went there and they were teaching them. They were like, she was like, are you teaching them Latin? Are you teaching them math? And they were like, oh, they're just women. But she was like, are you teaching them Latin? Are you teaching them math? And they're like, we're going to teach them math next year. What about Latin? Oh. Their women like it was that kind of situation and she says that quote-unquote women's work actually makes women well suited to astronomical observation and there is this one pretty cool quote where she says the eye that directs a needle in the delicate meshes of embroidery will equally well bisect a star with the spider web of the micrometer Routine observations too, dull as they are, are less dull than the endless repetition of the same pattern in crochet work. So she's drawing this nice parallel between quote unquote women's work in this instance, she's talking about embroidery and sewing and the skill, not even talent, the skill that is necessary because it's one that is built, one that can be learned um, and drawing the line between that and the work that is done in Astronomical Observation, which is pretty cool. Like not a parallel that I've ever thought about, but it reads as pretty poetic. Mm-hmm. She talks about how she likes being outside at night, looking through the telescope and breathing fresh air. At one point she says, but her back gets tired and <laughs> she gets cold. <laughs> even though she really loves it, which I'm like, that's real. If <laughs> may love something, but it may take a toll on you in a way. Also, she doesn't talk a ton about her personal life and her uh, connection to religion before a certain point, like before the 1840s, but she does mention caring less about church doctrine. The more she hears of it over time, you can hear kind of her disdain in her turn of phrase in the way that she talks about uh, not being so into it after a certain point. She says that like her, a reverend that she knew She comments on a reverend that came through, and she said that he, like her, is quote-unquote religious only in feeling. So she never joined any church, though she did attend the Unitarian Church for for some years. Yeah, so I think we could go into her journal entries forever, but they do provide a lot of insight on the breadth of experience that she had. Some, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all taken together. She talks about going to a slave market at one point, And then there's another part which is funny to me, where she talks about going to a black church where the pastor says they're quote unquote not much for talking, but it talked for a quote full hour. And (laughs) I like, I had to stop for that one because I am so used to that as a person who went to the Baptist church. It's just so funny to me that this is from the 1800s (laughs) and it was the exact same. She talks about all the exaltation that happens in the Black church that she went to and the call and response, which she wasn't used to, but I'm super used to as a Black woman who grew up in the church in the South and how services and sermons were always far too long. But she has these moments where... She talks about going to the slave market and she acknowledges the tragedy of being separated from your family to be sold elsewhere. She's basically like, oh, you poor thing. You know, I couldn't imagine being separated from my family in that way. All of my kindreds or something like that, she says. And then in a, that was obviously a paraphrase, (laughs) go and read it yourself. (laughs) But in another entry, she says she doesn't think that the slaves are badly treated, just quote unquote, sleek, fat and lazy. And- I'm not sure exactly what the word sleek means in that. I'm guessing it it means something about appearance, but it is definitely used, it's it's paired with the fat and lazy idea. So it has to be something, you know, in those derogatory terms, basically like, they don't seem like they're, they seem pretty happy, you know, so there are these moments where you can see the contradictions in her thinking and, and how the time that she was in and her being a white woman in the 1800s affected the way that she thought about things and all the hypocrisy in that specific instance that was present. Um, so it's always worthwhile going and seeing what the people set themselves in. So is the case for Mariah. Um, and y'all know I love quotes, so I could go on forever, but I'm not going to. I do appreciate her thoughts on, she talks about how she doesn't know a lot. There's a quote where she says, I look back at my old computations and like, it, I I see now that I don't really know a bunch more, you know, I'm a better thinker, but I I don't, I don't know so much more than I knew there before. And she says that the quote, the world of learning is so broad, but the human soul is so limited in power. We reach forth and strain every nerve, but we seize only a bit of the curtain that hides the infinite from us. So her students enjoyed her, the way that she spoke too. Um, They talk about how they were inspired by some of the things that she said, but she did resign from Vassar in January of 1888 to the disappointment of many of her students and colleagues. They didn't want her to leave so much that the trustees asked her to keep living at the college and using the observatory, which is where she was living, but she declined and she went back to Lynn, Massachusetts with her family. And she ended up dying just about a year later on June 28th, 1889. And The biography that was published posthumously in 1896 was Mariah Mitchell, Life, Letters, and Journals, and that's where you can read a lot of her work. Her home was preserved, and she was recognized in the National Women's Hall of Fame. And a foundation, the Maria Mitchell Association, was established in Nantucket, and there was an observatory in Nantucket named after her, as well as another object in space, a crater on the moon, was named after her. So... She has been remembered in many ways. Crater on the moon. Yeah, that's <laughs> something I
1: would like. I didn't realize Best people was. named craters. I'm not gonna lie, yeah. that's the new one to
0: me. Oh, yeah. I think we've talked about somebody else on here that had a crater.
2: I do think there was one other person. I can't remember who it was. Oh. I missed that part. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now goal. I know again. Now I definitely know. I'm still yes. learning as well. So,
0: yes. We are still learning um yeah, this it was a fascinating story, and definitely the journal um, <laughs> as you said, the good and the bad there were there are some excellent burns she has from like her time in Europe specifically, where she would like call people out, and I really appreciated that <laughs> um so yeah, worth worth reading, um, and it is interesting to kind of get this window (laughs) into what was going on at that time. And um, she was, she was very good with words, but she was also very personable. I don't know if that makes sense.
2: Like you could tell
0: it was her, like she was shining through what she was writing.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes people's journals can read as just a log of things that happened but she clearly really was meditating on things as she was going through them, and I think we get glimpses of both of those, like these really broad philosophical ideas, and then also like you know, I went here in Europe and I talked to this person, so I think it's a nice mix.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Well, I guess new goal: get a comet or crater named after us. Everyone.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure if that's on my bucket list, but right.
1: I don't know if I would want a crater named after me. That feels (laughs) offensive. I don't know. I feel like (laughs) a crater (laughs) is better than a comet. I don't know. I'll have to think Uh, about this. (laughs) There's so many things to this. Yeah, I did really also. I loved hearing about her, but it it, it is obvious. Like, like, there's a lot of problematic things when you are nicely tucked into um, a privileged setting, even the fact that that her, like, it's lovely to see that a father, men in her life were actually advocating for her to get the recognition, and she still had to work and push to get other women to be a part of this conversation, but with some of the things that you talked about, it's obvious that she was very like, well, it didn't, it doesn't really affect me, so I don't think it's that bad type of narrative and that's always something that we have to look out for when it comes to putting people on pedestals in general. We can learn from them and definitely celebrate the goodness and the amazing things that they did, but we also have to put in reality they were people. These are flaws, and these are huge flaws. (laughs) These are problematic flaws, and we have to recognize that. But she did also love her people, like you were talking about. She wrote when you said Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson. I was like, oh, that's why. Like I can see that poetry level of her uh, writings because she actually (laughs) wrote some poetry to the point she's like, I had to. Rhyme these names about her students. And it's yeah. lovely to see that. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's how I wrote too. I was like, how do I rhyme this name to this? <laughs> so I was like, hey, look at that. This is how poetry works. I'm, I'm I'm okay. Just kidding, y'all. I'm just kidding. But yeah, it's very interesting to see when you start looking at the depth of the history. We always like to put that caveat of this is what we know, this is what's been recorded. Uh, and thank goodness someone did preserve this because now we see, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she was the absolute first or they are the absolute first, and or that everything you read is pristine and pretty. Like we have to put the the we shine the light on all of it as it should mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you Eve's are always so
0: great at that. You bring us these nuanced stories uh, and we love it. And we're always so thrilled when you're here. So thank you, thank you, thank you for coming yeah, thank on. Thank you. <laughs> always
2: happy to be here. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, well, where can the good listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at not apologizing, on Twitter at Yves Jeffcoat. And you can find me on this here show on many other episodes of Female First. You can go back through the catalog. We're, I think, in the 20s at this point of episodes that we have. So you can hear about other people in history who were the first to do whatever they were the first to do. And...
1: That's about it.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. I think we're due for another celebration soon. I, I'm just going to. Are we,
1: are we sticking to the cheesecake and champagne theme or are we going to? What, what else are we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I don't know. We might have to switch it up next time. Okay. Well, we'll figure that
0: out. We'll figure that out. Uh, in the meantime, listeners, if you would like to contact us, you can. Our email is stephaniamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told you is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Nextcom.com slash compatibility.